Today, my guest is Glenn Washington. And if his name or his voice sounds familiar, it's probably because he's the host of Snap Judgment, a podcast which airs on National Public Radio. Snap Judgment Studios. Glenn and his family grew up in the WCG, actually just 40 minutes away from me in West Michigan. I wanted to talk to Glenn about his experience in the church. I wanted to ask him why a black family, or really any family of color, would have joined an organization whose leadership had clearly promoted racist ideologies directly from the pulpit. And I wanted to ask him if he thought that his time in the church had produced any positive or redeeming experiences. And it turns out that he credits his success as a podcaster to his time in the Worldwide Church of God. From 13 Media, I'm Trisha Jenkins, and this is Worldwide, the Unchosen Church. Before we get to Glenn's story, I feel like I need to give you just a little bit of background on some of the church's more racist theologies. For example, in 1982, which, by the way, was the same year that Michael Jackson's thriller had debuted, and Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder took Ebony and Ivory to the top of the charts, Herbert W. Armstrong delivered this sermon. Today I want to speak on what may possibly be the very next attack that Satan will use against this church, interracial marriage. The black in God's church are dissatisfied. They're trying to line up a group of blacks to give me an ultimatum that I get on the side of the social trend of this world or else. I'll tell you what I'll give them. I'll give them the or else. Now they may try to get laws, use the laws of the state and the nation against us if we don't approve interracial marriage. But I say, as for me and my house, we shall serve the eternal God. What are you going to say? Armstrong didn't just preach that interracial marriage was a sin. He also had a very strange idea called British Israelism which comes from the Old Testament when there were originally 12 tribes of Israel. But they end up getting divided when they're forced into captivity, and at some point, some of them return, but 10 of the tribes are lost to history. British Israelism says that those 10 tribes actually migrated out of the Middle East and into Western Europe. In fact, they actually became the nations of Western And more specifically than that, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, to whom special promises are made in the Bible, evolved into what today are known as Britain and America. And once you knew that, said Armstrong, you had the keys to unlocking biblical prophecies and understanding current events. But British Israelism also suggested something else. In a nutshell, it said that white Americans and their Anglo-Saxon ancestors were actually the chosen people of God, which meant that if you weren't white or Western European, then you weren't really the chosen people of God. 
And this emphasis on whiteness helps explain some of Armstrong's other interpretations of the Bible. And here's how Glenn remembers it. They don't, they never led with it. There was a lot of white supremacist elements to the uh, Worldwide Church of God. I remember a sermon being given about how there were three sons of Noah. And when they came off the ark, one of them tried to commit a sin against his father and he was cursed. And that curse was dark skin. And everyone who has dark skin is evidence of that curse right now. Like, huh? And the, the thing too, Armstrong was always going on about his pure white line, his pure white lineage. Several times, he actually claimed to be able to trace his, his lineage through the Bible back to Adam. Somehow he was talking about he was in the line of Windsor, which was the, the king and queen of England. And somehow, I guess if Charles passed away, Armstrong was up next to bat for, for, the, for the big king of England throne or whatever. Through the line of Windsor, he could go back to Adam. And it was pure. It was always a pure white seed, unblemished in its generations that he was talking about this whole time, that, that he was pure, and that was why he was chosen as an apostle, that Jesus was pure white, that Noah was pure white, and that Adam was pure white. Everybody was pure, pure in their generations white. Everybody, and everyone who, who wasn't that was somehow a corruption through Eve's womb. So I know that this whole thing sounds so ridiculous, but I remember these same sermons. And in high school, I think I even wrote a poem called The Curse of Ham, which I am incredibly embarrassed to admit now. For Glenn, though, the policy that bothered him the most didn't have anything to do with Armstrong's lineage. It was the church's teaching that interracial dating or interracial marriage was a sin. Growing up, I found the church to be extremely racist. The big deal for me was that I lived in West Michigan. You weren't allowed to interracial date for any reason, and it had a lot of things going on about that, which was all cool. I mean, I like Black women, that's great. There just weren't any. And so if I didn't do interracial, there's going to be a lot of lonely nights. <laughs> I remember when I went to SEP camp, I was standing there at a dance. There was again very, very few um, black girls. And this Canadian girl who I was friends with, she said, let's dance. And I was like, I don't think that's going to go down. And she's like, oh, come on. I was like, all right. So we, we went, we got in the dance floor. Probably 20, I'd say maybe 30 seconds in, I got the tap on the shoulder. Got taken aback and gave him the strict talking to about the sin of being unequally yoked and the evils and the, and the various things that I was doing, the hellfire and burning and all this other kind of stuff. It was a big deal. One of the worst things, this was at a feast in Niagara Falls. I met a girl. I met a girl and we went and got us some fudge. We went to the, the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. And then we went into a haunted house. And we kissed. It was one of the first times ever 
and for like two minutes or two hours or whatever it was, we walk out and there's a woman screaming that I have evil corruption of interracial relations and all this kind of stuff. It was crazy, it's nuts. But for all of that craziness, Glenn says that for a long time, he was still a true believer in the church. He just thought that the leaders were wrong on the issues regarding race. And when he shared that viewpoint with the local members of his congregation, some of them, both black and white members, supported him, which encouraged him to push back a bit. They would call certain tribes the Canaanites, the Ananites and stuff like that. These were black and these were white. And that's why they were, weren't allowed to mix and this, this and that. And but then you do a little bit of research and this stuff starts breaking down. So we actually, I wrote a letter to, at the time, they called it the Council of Elders in the Worldwide Church of God, which is supposed to be a authoritative body that gives pronouncements on, on policy. I said, all y'all's race stuff, that doesn't make any sense, and here's why. Laid out the evidence and then passed around a few copies. And we got shut down really, really hard. We shouldn't be spreading dissension. And I got this letter, this official letter back. I'm not supposed to um, talk about this stuff and, and, and sow confusion or whatever it was. They came down really, really hard. The big thing in the church was you should prove all things. They would say that. They didn't mean it, it turns out, but they would say it. Prove all things, prove all things, prove all things. But then when you went to prove all things, turns out you better prove it the way they came up with. And what they did was through, you know, the Bible bowls, the Bible baseball. These are church youth tournaments where you would chime in answers on the various things. You know, I was a Bible bowl champion, right? You were one of those too. And I think that you got to memorize all these passages of the Bible, this, this, and that. Well, I think the kids are the only ones who can really do that. People say, well, such and such and such is in the Bible. And you were like, no, it's not. It's not there. In a lot of ways, it, 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 like they, I thought they, they planted the seeds of their own disintegration by saying things like this. I could flip to a Bible scripture faster than anyone I knew and be able to then say, no, you are, you're wrong on this. I just thought they had it wrong. On race specifically, it was it was a, such a um, disconnect between what I could read in the book and the stuff they were talking about. That disconnect continued to grow over time. And Glenn eventually came to reject and leave the church because of its racism, which he came to understand as the underlying foundation of the organization, and not just a minor part of its theology that he took issue with. I, I thought, okay, they got the core right, but this racist belief over here is, is um, wrong. And, but then I, I came to understand that that racism was the core, that everything was built 
off of this sort of racist foundation that even the idea of the place of safety, that was for descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. And those were all white people, supposedly. You might be able to get in as a person of color, but that was just because of your proximity to these white folks, that this was a compact in the Bible between pure white people and the Lord. And you are an adjunct to that. This is fundamentally a racist doctrine, was fundamentally a racist organization, and that's what led me out of it. Paradoxically, though, Glenn feels like the WCG actually created this really unique environment that worked to bridge ethnic and racial gaps and create some kind of dialogue and understanding that he still feels is missing in most of American culture today. You you know, we didn't have a a compound, but your social group was all up in this, was in this organization. As racist as I think it was, and I think it was extremely racist, the white people saw real blacks more than I would say their neighbors did. If you had to take the average person in that organization and then take whoever they were living next door to, the person in the church had probably more interaction with actual black people than the than their community at large. Like I spent a lot of time in people's backyard. It was a second-class citizenship, but being Black in America is a second-class citizenship. When you think the world is going to end, it forces a type of intimacy, even in the midst of a very sort of racial problematic situation. America doesn't talk to America, and there's a lot of the problems that we have. I think to some degree, there was a dialogue between the racists and the church because of the intensity of things that were going on. So given all of this information, I had to ask Glenn, why did your family ever join the Worldwide Church of God in the first place? And why do you think that any family of color joined the WCG? I don't entirely know how we got into this group. I think a lot of it in a more broader maybe maybe more specific case from my family was that we were in Detroit. This is right after the Detroit riots. Tonight, we are marking an anniversary that forever changed Detroit. It has been 50 years since July 23rd, 1967, the day violent unrest erupted in our city. It continued for nearly a week, leaving areas of the city burned and all who live there scarred. There was a lot of just fear, like as a black family, what are we going to do? Detroit was crumbling. It was almost like we were running away. It was completely apart from everything that was going on. It was an escape. It gave us an out. And I gave my parents an out. And it gave them a community. The community was really big. And don't know. I don't know. I think it's one of the biggest questions of my life is what the hell are we doing there? I would just say this. There will always be 10, 15% of people who will sell out whatever group it is. Uh, slaves 
would tell Massa where the where the runaways were. There were people here and in, in Bay Area who homosexuals were advocating against legalizing gay marriage. For some reason, there is always going to be this thing where some people feel like that, like there's safety in the authority. There's that you will be under that wing of the authority. I grew up with those two other black guys in our church. And we used to clown the black leadership. They would have these, these elders who would go and, and quote this party line. This is when I'm 13 and 12, 13, 14. We would call them the all kinds of times, the biggest Uncle Toms I've ever seen. I, hate, I hated a lot of the racism in the church, but the what I really hated was the people, the black people who sold it, who gave it cover, who gave it legitimacy. We can't be racist. Hearing so-and-so, let's bring his his monkey ass out here and have him do a little tap dance, a little soft shoe for you. Put out me and my shadow and we'll, we'll be out. It was it was really hard as a as a kid to see this stuff and to, to have a, a minister screaming about the mark of ham and then looking directly at me as if I have tracked some sin into the congregation. But Glenn says that the experience was not a total bust. For one, one of the things that he took away from the church was this unparalleled sense of community that he has yet to experience in another form. And that's actually something that attracted a lot of the church members that I knew. But Glenn has this very vivid way of articulating just what that community looked and felt like. The church celebrated something pretty amazing. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. It took place in one of maybe 30 to 50 cities around the world that members chose and then traveled to for a week-long celebration. And no joke, during that week, members had to spend 10% of their annual income in one week. They could spend it on temporary housing, food, entertainment, you name it, but you had to spend it in the name of worshiping God. And that created some pretty amazing experiences for both the kids and the adults alike. Most of our parents came from a normal world, but our generation was the oddball out. Because we weren't in a compound, we went to regular public schools, we had to have our weirdness as a badge of honor and as a shield. We had to be weird all the time and just accept that weirdness, accept that we're not going to be understood, accept that the things that are important to us, things that we care about, the things that come out of our mouth are not what people around us are going to even understand. And so for us, I will say this, I remember as a kid, like when we would go to our big festival was not Christmas, it was a Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles Okay, it means like you go and you're going to go to a place somewhere else and you're going to see people like you for a week. And because we had the numbers, generally you would take over this area. The, the, the feast site that both of us would go to a lot probably was the Wisconsin Dells, where there'd be 10,000 people that would be there. Now, we, I'm in the middle of the country. 
and you put this green sticker on your car, which says that you are part of this organization. And you know, no one apart around us knows what that is. And we take off on our little station wagon, go on the freeway, and then you see another green sticker. It's like, oh my God, beat the horn, holler, yeah, you might know him, you might not. And you go to running, you might even switch, the kids might even switch cars if y'all go to a, a rest stop or something like that. And you go down that road, down that road, closer and closer, another green sticker. There's one, there's one. And all of a sudden it feels like, no, I'm not just some crazy by myself with this high school where everyone hates me. There's other people like this. And you get closer and closer to that peace site and you see every single car is one of you. And I don't think that anyone can understand that excitement. It's just like, I'm not by myself. You grow up really by yourself. A lot of us grow up extremely lonely in that organization. And those few respites were beyond magical. Someone said, well, did you guys have a holiday to the rival Christmas? Oh, we had something better than Christmas. We had something better than Christmas. We had the Feast of Tabernacles where you were commanded by God to blow 10% of your income in a week. My parents, you know, we never went no restaurant. They're talking, what you want? Extra gravy, uh, uh, (laughs) T-bone steaks, uh, onion rings. What? What's it going to be this week? Let's go to the swimming pool. And what? We never, hotels? We never did that. That was an innovation, I must say, in the annals of modern Christianity. As crazy as it was, they made they made the, the oddballs feel like home. And you see a lot of nerddom culture. Like if someone goes to a dragon con or whatever it may be, a burning man. It, I, I see them trying to re- recreate that, that shared sort of space. And, I, and I've been to, su- to some of these things. I don't think anything's ever come as close to me as the Feast of Tabernacles. I have to admit that I had actually forgotten all about those green stickers. But when Glenn told me that story, it took me straight back. And he is so right. Seeing those cars and those neon green stickers made you excited. It was like, look, there's one of us, and then there's another one of us. And that was powerful. The second thing that Glenn took away from the church was something that admittedly I paid little attention to back then. It was how the church wove together and then told, or actually really sold, its mythologies and its theologies. And this, he says, gave him his future career in podcasting and has influenced the way that he tells stories on his show, Snap Judgment. I feel like of all the refugees who have been hurt by that organization, I'm the luckiest one because I I learned story from that group. The reason why they were able to fill those auditoriums and have TV shows and magazines and have this guy talk about he was an apostle, fly around talking nonsense to everyone. The reason why they were able to do that is because we had a shared story. And we we had a way of telling that story to ourselves and to others. Herbert, before he talked about the Bible, 
he would talk about himself. He'd be, you know, I was talking to Loma and, and then, you know, he's, he, he's bringing you into his world and giving you an entry point that feels pedestrian almost, feels normal. He didn't lead with the crazy stuff. He led with breakfast, you know, <laughs> before he got to his point. And I think that that is really a huge part of SNAP. It's like, okay, I got a story for you, but first I got to make you feel at home. I got to bring you in. And basically it's almost like showing your credentials. I'm not a crazy person. I'm just like, you know, you know, I put on my pants one step at a time, but you won't believe what happened to me. And that, that whole thing, I, I would say that that's almost classic snap. I feel like I studied at the feet of charlatans, of, 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 of masters of the shell game. I feel like I was right there, you know, watching this whole craziness go down with this front row seat. And now I see the, I see the, the curtain's been pulled back. I see the Wizard of Oz is just some dude with some with some wires and duct tape, but I still see this the, the power of story. I see what the power of story did. Power of story had us running around the woods with a bunch of crazies talking about Petra, had black people up in a white supremacist Jesus cult. That's what the power of story did. know if Glenn thinks that you can ever outrun your past. But I want to share just one last story with you that shows how much influence high demand groups have on its members, even 20 or 30 years down the road. And how knowing the impact of your history can be such an important tool in crafting a new purpose. I tell stories now every week for Snap Judgment. When we first started I, I proposed this thing. It was like this TV, radio, magazine thing. I was pitching it for the, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And, and they had someone internally who said, who went to find people who had done a certain thing like that earlier. And they came back with um, this preacher called Herbert W. Armstrong. And <laughs> I was like, run as fast as you can. Use right back where you started. Yes, I wanted to take those same tools but I wanted to use them in a different way. It's like this, like, I am a huge hip hop head. I love hip hop, but there's a lot of the misogyny aspects and certain types of hip hop that I thought were pugnant. And I, and, and I love that artists came and they said, no, we can, we can have this beat, we can have this community, we can have this vibe. We can take that stuff and leave that back where it belongs, in the garbage. And I felt the same thing about this. I learned story at the feet of these crazies. And I wanna regain my own story. I wanna be able to tell stories. I wanna be able to use stories to build people up and not tear them down. I think my life, everything I do right now is almost a residue of this chance encounter with these crazy cultists. So even if Glenn doesn't exactly know why his family joined the Worldwide Church of God, or even why they stayed in it for so long, I'm super thankful that he was there. 
because that experience really did make him a wonderful storyteller. I also hope that you'll check out his podcast, Snap Judgment, which is available from most podcast libraries. I think it serves as a wonderful reminder of how we can learn from the more painful elements of our past and use those experiences to create something wonderful and new. Next up on Worldwide, The Unchosen Church. This church is heavily into patriarchal norms. I was raised to be a submissive, compliant housewife. The husband is supposed to be the spiritual head of the family. And my spiritual head of the family didn't exist. The highest goal for girls was to be a pastor's wife. So growing up as a woman, there were no goals. I was so desperately afraid of my own sexuality. When I had my first kiss, I literally had a panic attack. We hope you'll join us for this important episode on the intersection of gender and sexuality in the Worldwide Church of God and its later offshoots. You can listen to this episode on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are made available. I'd also like to extend a very special thank you to Glenn Washington today for taking the time to talk with me and to Snap Judgment for allowing us to use clips from their show opener. Worldwide, The Unchosen Church is written, produced, and hosted by me, Trisha Jenkins, editing and sound design by 13 Media, music licensed by Soundstripe. If you would like to send us a question or comment, please reach out via email at worldwidepod11 at gmail.com or DM us on social media. You can find us on Instagram at worldwidepod and on Twitter and Facebook at worldwidepod11. Until next week, we hope that you will be as blessed and as happy as the man and woman who doth never walk astray. 